Welcome to the Revelation Power Podcast. This is episode four, and we're going to entitle it The Ruler of the Kings of the Earth. I'm going to stay in the same little scriptural reference that we had in the previous episode, Revelation 1, 4 through 8. And I'm going to start uh, at verse 4 and just kind of read uh, two paragraphs because that's what I want to focus on today. From John to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace from the one who is and who was and who is coming and from the seven spirits which are always before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first risen from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him is the glory and power forever. Amen. So I want to just focus on a couple of thoughts today from these two paragraphs. And the first is at the end of the first paragraph. It's in verse 5. From Jesus Christ. This message is coming from Jesus himself. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the first risen from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. This little passage just reminds us exactly who Jesus is. And and in order of the importance of what we remember about Jesus, he is the first risen from the dead. Well, he's not the first resurrected from the dead uh, because he himself resurrected Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead four days and his sister's testimony was he already stunk. And so she discouraged Jesus from even going near the tomb and yet Jesus walks up a distance from the tomb and and calls out to Lazarus and and the scripture says a remarkable thing it says and the dead man came out well he wasn't dead if he's coming out right I've often wondered what happened to Lazarus after that you don't hear anything about the testimony of Lazarus or people talking about Lazarus or people trying to kill Lazarus I guess there is one verse that says they were trying to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, Lazarus, but, but that's all you really hear because he stood as such a tremendous witness to the power of Christ. They wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Uh, I've always wondered about that, that servant boy from the temple when Peter cuts off his ear and Jesus reattaches it. I wonder how long he kept his job when the high priest had to look at him every day and look at that ear and know that it was Jesus who had reattached it, who had instantly healed it. I bet that kid didn't keep his job for long, but that's not the point here. Here the point is the first risen from the dead, the first to come back eternally. You see, Lazarus came back to live out the rest of his life. Jesus comes back from the dead and he's changed. He's not going to stay here on earth like Lazarus did. He doesn't come back with an earthly body like Lazarus does. In fact, he cautions his disciples not to touch him until he is glorified, whatever that means. But when he's first resurrected, he won't let anybody touch him. He's not in his final form, but he's come back for eternity, and he's the first to ever have done that. So 
he serves this this purpose in the New Testament. We call it first fruits, right? It's it's the promise of what's coming. If you've ever had fruit trees or berry bushes, you know that the season's about to start when the very first fruit sets on. Now, that first fruit uh, tends not to be as ripe or large or as good as the fruit that's coming in the harvest. It's, it's just the promise that there's more to come. And the Bible clearly portrays Jesus as our promise that if he was raised from the dead, so then shall we be. You know, that, that as he was resurrected, we will be resurrected. He even prays in John chapter 17 that as he is one with the Father, we will become one with the Father and him in the same relationship that they share with each other. We'll talk about that more later in the book. But this idea that Jesus is the first risen uh, is really strong. It's really powerful. He is your promise and my promise that that same resurrection is coming. And then the book of Revelation calls him by a title. The first resurrected from the dead, the first risen from the dead, and the ruler of all the kings of the earth. It doesn't call him the king of all kings. It calls him the one who rules all the apparent rulers, the ruler of all the kings of the earth. This is a very very important concept that we grab and hold on to for the rest of the book of Revelation because it kind of dictates to us how we should understand the rest of this book. Christ is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. They are not ultimate authority. They think they're ultimate authority. They think they're all that. They're not. They look like ultimate authority because they have the authority to steal your freedom, to imprison you, even to kill you. But that doesn't make them the ultimate authority because your promise is that you'll be resurrected. See, your promise is that you belong now to a power that they don't have and they can't touch. The worst they can do is send you home. When I was a kid in school, I was always kind of perplexed by the threat. If you don't behave yourself, we're going to send you home. Well, I would much rather have been at home than to have been at school. I didn't like school. I didn't want to be in that building. I preferred to be at home. If they had had independent study programs or online study programs in my day, I would have been one of the first kids to jump on it. The, the, the opportunity to study my schoolwork with the teacher's guidance away from all the distractions and the craziness that went on at school, I would have welcomed that. There was no threat. We'll send you home. I would gladly go home. My parents caught on to that. And my Aunt Mary was actually my great aunt, but Aunt Mary was a nurse. She'd been a nurse for her entire lifetime, I think. She was a nurse in World War II in England. She, she had started a hospital in my hometown. She'd gone on to be a professor of nursing at a liberal arts college. Now she was retired and living back in my hometown. So when I came up sick or unable to stay at school, my parents had my Aunt Mary pick me up. Now, Aunt Mary was from that nursing school of, of warrior nurses, right? Get up and walk now or you'll never walk again. 
She was that kind of personality. She did. She wasn't buffaloed by, oh, I don't feel good. She made you get up and get busy. She, she would make sure that my teachers were sending my schoolwork home with me. And then as soon as we got to her house, I would get a snack, usually homemade shortbread cookies because she was of Scotch descent and made the most amazing shortbread cookies you've ever had in your life. But I would get my snack, shortbread cookies and a glass of tea because she never really had any other beverage at her house. And then we would open the books. And I would say, but Aunt Mary, I don't feel good. She's like, that's why you're here. But while you're here, you can do your schoolwork not feeling good. It didn't matter. You were going to do your schoolwork. And I, I actually enjoyed it. She lived in a, a little mobile home in a, in a trailer park behind a restaurant in my, in my hometown. Nobody drove back there. It was very quiet. Her home was always very quiet. She didn't play music or have the TV on most of the time during the day. And so I could sit there in the, in the quiet and, and do my schoolwork. But I wasn't going to get away with not wanting to be there. So, you know, the threat of we're going to send you home meant we're going to give you to your Aunt Mary. And that meant I was going to have to do everything that I would have had to done at school anyway without my friends. And so I stopped begging uh, to leave the school and I stopped misbehaving in order to make them send me home. But the world, the worst it can do is send us home to glory, to a place that isn't just silence and homework. It's celebration, it's reverence, it's worship, it's eternal glory. That's not much of a threat. I have a friend who, who often says, well, you can't threaten me with a good time. Well, that's exactly what the world tries to do when it threatens to take our earthly lives. Oh, well, that's not much of a loss. I inherit eternity then because I have the promise from he who was the first to be risen from the dead. Then the next paragraph says something very remarkable to Christ, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him who loves us. I was just watching this afternoon a golf tournament and one of the great golfers of my time has certainly struggled with his own demons. Uh, this is the second time he's wrecked a vehicle. The first time uh, he wrecked a vehicle and that didn't hurt him, but it looked like his wife must have taken a four iron to his face because he, he got beat up pretty bad in that little experience. Uh, but this time he, he crashed a car at between 80 and 85 miles an hour, nearly lost his life, very, very nearly lost a leg, has been about 14 months in rehabilitation and today played in, finished the first golf tournament uh, that he's come back to play. Now he didn't compete very well. He's way behind the leaders, but the fact that he was playing was miraculous. And as he walked up the 18th fairway, the very last hole of the round, the crowd around that fairway and around that green was, was immense. And they, they gave him a standing ovation from the, from the time he stepped off the tee box all the way down the fairway and all the way around the green until he stepped up to hit his putt. They screamed and cheered and loved that guy. For all of his faults, with all of his failures, for all the disappointments that he's had, he's been the most prolific and successful golfer of my generation. 
and and he set the standard. Every other person out there in that tournament swinging the golf club swings the club in a way that they've learned by emulating him. A few years ago, he released a super slow motion video of his golf swing. And everybody in my generation has analyzed and emulated the golf swing in that super slow motion video until they all swing the club much like he does. They all follow through much like he does. And their success, the the success of golfers in my generation has has just elevated incredibly because they've all fashioned their game after him. It's hard for him to compete now at, at an older age against kids who can swing like him and do the things he did and work out like him and they've learned to play the game from him. But as he walked around that 18th green, I was impressed by the fact that those thousands of people cheering, yelling, shouting encouragement to him at the top of their lungs, they love that guy. They honestly love him. Regardless of his failures, regardless of his faults, regardless of the demons that he's fought with across the years, regardless of the times he's disappointed them, I could hear people shouting, we love you, and calling him by name. We love you. And and I hope that it got through to him. I hope that he could sense that for all he's been through, the golfing world still loves that guy. And, and I, I was moved to tears by the fact that they wouldn't stop cheering until he stepped up to hit his putt. And, and out of respect, they got quiet and let him putt. And when he finished the hole, the roar went up. They had to hear it all over the golf course. And, and when you're golfing in a tournament, you hear a roar from another part of the stadium and you wonder, you know, what's going on? Who just hit a great shot? I'm sure every golfer out there understood that that man had just finished his round, the final round of that tournament. But that love, that expression, that impressive, overwhelming, filling love is nothing compared to the love that Christ has for us, to him who loves us. Remember who John was. John was the disciple who in his gospel constantly refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He doesn't call himself by name because in in his culture to write about yourself was arrogant. And so he simply called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. He had always known Jesus' love. He didn't betray him like Peter did. He didn't walk away like Judas did. He'd always been at Jesus' side. He'd always been the faithful dependable disciple that Jesus could could count on. And now he portrays Jesus as the faithful one, the one who loves us. He spent his lifetime knowing that love. And in this final vision of his life, he's reminded that this vision doesn't come from someone who wants to scold us. It doesn't come from someone who wants to hurt us. It doesn't come from someone who wants to punish us or discipline us. It comes from the one who loved us, and look at the next phrase, who loved us and freed us from our sins. He loves us and has freed us from our sins. Wow. Does that mean 
I'll never sin again? Well, it at least means I don't have to. Uh, an example, I preached a message a few months ago and, and I asked the congregation, I was talking about this idea of freedom from sin. And I said, you're free from sin right now. And, you know, I got a lot of looks of doubt and consternation because we are sinful people at heart, because we almost with a consistency say things we shouldn't, offend people when we don't want to, commit what the Bible would call sin and we would consider sin. It's hard to imagine that we have been freed from our sin. And so I gave them this simple illustration. I said, Any, anybody go out shopping this week at like Dollar Store or Walmart? And of course, hundreds of hands went up. I said, yeah, good, good. You went shopping. What'd you steal? And of course, the, the audience just kind of laughed, some of them nervously, wondering if I'd seen their receipt, I, I suppose. But but they laughed and, and they, you know, the murmur was nothing. We didn't steal anything. I didn't expect that they'd stolen anything. But they had the opportunity. It was right there in front of them. I said, hey, that's that's perfectly good stuff you just walked by. Why didn't you put some of it in your pocket? And somebody shouted, well, that would be wrong. I said, how do you know it's wrong? It's dead silent for a moment. Somebody said, thou shalt not steal. I said, oh, wait, wait, wait. Because the Bible says something. Because you've heard it from the Bible. And because you believe it to be formative for your life. Are you telling me simply because you believe it, you have the power to not sin? Well, they'd never thought of it that way. And, and there was a great moment of deep silence as they contemplated that. But that's the, that's the doxology in the biblical book of Jude, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from falling. He's the God of the power not to sin because he has freed us from the necessity of sinning. Has he made us perfect so that we'll never sin? Well, not in the world's eyes. The Bible says we are the righteousness of God in his eyes. We are perfect to him like a like a bratty little two-year-old is perfect to its mother. And she says, oh, he's just the best kid. And all of us who know him are like, no, he's not. But in God's eyes, we're his children. In God's eyes, we are totally forgiven from the sin that we once committed and every sin that we would ever commit again. The Bible says as grace abounded, as, as sin abounded, grace abounded even more. What then? Should we just go on and sin carelessly? The Bible says, by no means should we do that. We should understand that our sin has been absolutely and totally forgiven and forgotten. It will not be counted against us. And because we walk in God's grace, the sin that we may commit in the future is also forgivable to that same full extent that grace will cover that sin. The Bible indicates that it's just about an automatic thing. Uh, I don't want to put binders on you and say that, well, you better remember to repent of it because sometimes you sin cluelessly. At least I do. Sometimes I say offensive things to people that, that I didn't even mean to be offensive. I never dreamed they would be offensive, but that person gets offended and it's two or three years before they come back to me and say, hey, when you said that, you offended me. And I'm always a little surprised. But grace covered that, that failure the moment it happened. I wasn't going to go to hell if I died between the time I uttered the stupidity and the time the person made it known to me and I could apologize. I wasn't hell bound for a careless word. 
Now, the Bible says I'll be called to account for that. But the Bible also says that it's grace that covers that. Perfect grace. God made him who knew no sin to be absolute sin for us in our place so that in his place, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Christ is the one who loves us and freed us from our sin. Freed us from our sin. That old video that plays in your mind about what you used to do and what you once did and how you failed way back when, turn that off. And anytime it starts to play again, just consciously hit the stop button. That's not you now. That's not you anymore. It hasn't even been you since the day it happened. Turn it off. If you need strength to do that, pray to God who gives us strength, right? Strength comes from God, from knowing Him. Pray and say, Lord, give me the strength to turn the video off. That's not me anymore. It's never going to be me again. If you dwell on it, you'll slip into it again because the enemy will define that as your character, but that's not your character. Christ freed you from that stuff. Turn off the, the recording. Turn off the guilt. Turn off the replay. Turn off walking back into your previous failures and walk freely into the future that God has for you because he's made us. He has made us, the Bible says right here. He has recreated us to be his priests. Ha! I mean, I'm not fit to be Jesus' priest at all. But he has made us into our own kingdom and priests to serve his father. He has recreated us into a new kingdom. This is a formative thought as you move through the book of Revelation. Christ has formed you and I, who are Christians, into a new kingdom, not subject to the rules and the condemnations and the judgments of the empire, not subject to the rules and the condemnations and the judgments of the enemy of our souls, not subject to any other authority but himself. He has formed us into his own new kingdom and, and ordained us priests to serve his father. You see, in the Old Testament, normal people couldn't just walk right into the temple and, and encounter God. He lived in this holiest of holies place that was shut off from the rest of the world. And one priest could go in there one time a year to offer sacrifice for everybody else's sins. They were so afraid of that place that they put bells along the bottom of his robe, around the hem of his robe, so that if God struck him dead, when he fell to the ground, you'd hear all the bells rattle against the tile. They tied a rope around his ankle so that if they heard all the bells hit the tile, they could pull him out without anybody else having to go in there and endanger their lives before God. That's not who God is. When Christ gave his life on the cross for you and I, that veil, that curtain that separated God from his people, the Bible says was torn in two, was rent, was, was demolished. And so God lives with us personally, directly. We have, the Bible says, the freedom to bring our prayer requests straight into his presence, right before him and lift them to him. And he hears and he cares. So we're, we have the privileges of what only used to belong to one guy in the whole world, the high priest. Now it belongs to everyone who is a part of the priesthood of believers. You, me, 
my wife, my pastor, my friends in church, my, my brothers in Christ who go to other churches, we all belong to this priesthood of believers. We can all come into God's direct presence. I don't know if you're in your car or your office or you're listening through earbuds or earpods or headphones or, or where you are right now, but wherever you are in this moment, you have not just the privilege, the right, the birthright to bring your needs and yourself directly into the presence of God. That's pretty amazing. And I pray that you today will know the power of freedom from sin, of serving the ruler of all the kings of this earth, and the power of absolute forgiveness and the absolute freedom to come straight into the presence of God with your life and your needs, your faults, your failures, your victories, your joys, your celebrations, and know that you have a Father who hears them and cares, who has absolutely forgiven you, washed you white as snow, and continues to provide you the grace each day that even your careless words are covered. And I pray you'll walk in that power today. Have a great one.